It's pretty amazing to be thwarting terrorist attacks and helping save countless lives, but I think it gives you a very unique perspective on how vulnerable this world is. We didn't really know the first thing about starting a company that could do this, and we were pretty scared about what would a large enterprise even think about crowdsourcing their security. The idea at the time seemed crazy. You definitely start to learn that if you have the right resources, motivation, expertise, and you can align the three together, you're going to be pretty successful at accomplishing the mission at hand. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, Managing Partner at GGV Capital. On this episode, I'm joined by my good friend, Crystal Huang, as guest host. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Sarah Fryer from Square, Nate Wacharzik from Airbnb, and many others. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Also, I want to tell you about our sister podcast, 996, a bi-weekly show on tech entrepreneurship in China hosted by my fellow managing partner at GGV Capital, Hans Tung, and our colleague, Zara Zhang. In the show, they interview movers and shakers of China's tech industry, as well as tech leaders with a U.S.-China cross-border perspective. It's a fantastic show, and I've learned a ton from these interviews. You can take a listen by searching for 996 in any podcast app. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On the show today, we have Jay Kaplan, founder and CEO of Synac. Jay used to serve in a couple of cyber-related responsibilities at the Department of Defense, including being a member of the Incident Response and Red Team. He was also a senior cyber analyst at the NSA, where his focus was on supporting counterterrorism-related intelligence operations, which I hope he'll explain what that means in a second. He's been honored as a Forbes 30 Under 30 for technology, and Senac has also been recognized as a CNBC Disruptor Top 50, among many other accolades. We first met Jay and his co-founder, Mark Cure, in 2014. We were blown away by Jay's unique combination of deep domain knowledge. He's also worked on numerous counterterrorism missions that successfully thwarted many terrorist attacks around the world. And Jay's innate understanding of what it takes to commercialize crowdsourced security We led Synac Series B in 2014, and I've had the pleasure of serving on Jay's board ever since. Jay's a first-time CEO in a company of this size, but don't let that fool you. He's been a really quick study and is building Synac into a really exciting company. Jay, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks, Glenn. It's great to be here. Give us a quick version of what Synac does. So Synac essentially is a company that helps enterprises understand and answer the question, how secure am I? If someone like an adversary is going to try to break into my organization, how would they get in in the first place? We're not the first company to try to solve that problem. There's many consultancies that do that. There's um, a lot of other security companies that have tools and techniques to help answer that question. But we've really innovated in this space to help crowdsource that process. So effectively, we recruit hackers, um, white hat hackers, if you will, all over the world in over 50 different countries. And we pay them on a success basis to uncover security vulnerabilities across our, our enterprise customer base and now even across the federal government. We couple that with a really cool technology platform that we've built at the company to help enable scale and to enable efficiency on the hacker side. And we've found that this is just a much better model for doing vulnerability analysis than has ever been conducted before. Awesome. 
Well, the first topic we wanted to discuss is just, you know, your founding story, right? You used to work at the NSA, then you went and founded a company. What was your thought process and what drove you to do that? Yeah, I mean, going from the NSA and into starting um, a, a venture-backed uh, startup is a complete 180. <laughs> I've always kind of been an entrepreneur at heart. Um, I actually started a company when I was 13 years old in, in more of the shared web hosting space. Very obviously different business, but it was more on the shared web hosting side where companies would rent server space for me and then I'd kind of mark it up at a price and um, uh, automate that whole process and help them get their websites online. Built that to about a thousand clients, ended up selling it my freshman year of college. But that experience, I think, one, opened my eyes to the cybersecurity problem, seeing how many of our customers didn't really know anything about security and their websites would get hacked was uh, pretty interesting and something that I, I became pretty passionate about. But two, it also made me realize I don't want to work for a big company. I think I realized at that point I would someday definitely be running something on my own. Did I ever think it would be this early in my life? Not necessarily. Did I think I could get here this quickly? Um, I thought it would take a little bit longer, but I'm excited to, to be running Synac today and it's amazing to see what we've done uh, in such a short period of time. Now, with that said, obviously, fast forward to my time at NSA, which you know you you guys obviously mentioned, that was an incredibly enlightening job. One, obviously, it's pretty amazing to be thwarting terrorist attacks and and helping save countless lives. But two, I think it gives you a very unique perspective on how vulnerable this world is. You know, as uh, as a senior cyber analyst, as you called it, effectively, what I was was a state sponsored computer hacker. Um, I basically helped. The agency uh, gain intelligence from foreign networks and and terrorists and uncover what what were they planning, what were they going to do next, and in order to accomplish that job, we basically were responsible for figuring out where are the vulnerabilities that are going to enable us to get at th- that information. You definitely start to learn that if you have the right resources, motivation, expertise, and you can align the three together, you're going to be pretty successful at accomplishing the mission at hand. And I think that really closely parallels. What we're doing here at Synac, and it was um, really the catalyst behind starting the company. How about your your co-founder Mark? How did you guys come together? Uh, was it your idea? Was it Mark's idea? Or were you kind of independently thinking about this, starting a company, and and came at it together? Tell us a little about that founding spark moment. Yeah, I mean, thinking back to my time back at NSA, I always became fascinated with this new concept called bug bounty programs. Google had launched one, Facebook had launched one, Mozilla had one for a period of time. I always thought it was super interesting how these tech companies were basically enabling uncovering vulnerabilities in their online applications by leveraging hackers all over the world. But what I also recognized was that while there were so many positives to launching these bug bounty programs, there are also a lot of inherent negatives. Um, one being PR issues, two being how do you trust them, three being you know how do you make sure this can scale and you know where is the efficiency. And so one day I think I was just I was sitting next to Mark, who actually worked with me at the time. Um, we our desks were literally right next to each other, and I was like. Man, I wonder if you can like build an entire business just around this model, but formalize it and make it much more accessible to enterprise organizations. And I wonder if even the government would adopt something like this someday. We started bouncing around ideas. One thing led to another, and you know, I, I knew I was not going to be a career government employee. I don't know about Mark; he might have stayed there a little bit longer. But I knew after my my time was up at NSA, I actually owed them 
about four years um, due to them me going through a scholarship program where they basically paid for school. And I knew after that time, I'd probably be looking to do something else. It might have been going to business school and then starting a company after that, or just going right into starting a company or maybe joining a firm of some kind. But uh, after really talking to Mark and then even talking to just some other friends and people we knew in the space, we realized we were kind of onto something. This is something that we thought we could potentially build into a business. We didn't really know the first thing about starting a company that could do this, and we were pretty scared about, you know, would a large enterprise even think about crowdsourcing their security? The, the idea at the time seemed crazy. But we jumped in and we, we said, all right, like if we can somehow get some initial capital, if we can get some initial validation, we would leave and start this thing. And so, long story short, we applied to the Techstars Accelerator program in Boston and got accepted rather quickly, which was very exciting. And I'll never forget, they, they actually asked us the question or asked me the question, what will it take you to, uh, how much money will it take you to leave the NSA, your jobs right now, and, and do this accelerator program? And I think I said at the time, you know, I think we need like $25,000. And they were just like, they laughed. They're like, that's it? <laughs> They're like, easy, we can make that happen. And, uh, and the rest is history. So we, we left our jobs, um, moved to Boston for a few months, and then you know, started raising capital. So lesson number one for entrepreneurs, when you get that question, don't lowball them. Don't lowball them. Got it. But I didn't even know what lowballing them was. I, you know, that sounded like a decently large number to me at the time. So I didn't really know any better. So yeah, maybe just do your research ahead of those questions. You alluded to the fact that you wanted to assess, you know, the market opportunity. And uh, while you were at Techstars, even before or after, what did you guys do to get yourselves comfortable that there was a market for the service you guys had in mind? Yeah, I think for one, it's just talking to as many people as you possibly can. And so one thing that these accelerators do for you is expose you to a huge network of mentors. People who are in the industry, um, they might not even be security people, but they could be developers, they could be finance people, but people who care about risk and, and understand the security issue. And we must have had like 10 meetings a day just talking to different people about the idea, helping us think through the strategy, what would the messaging be, how do we really go to market. And then it was those mentors who ultimately led us to some of our first customers. They were small customers at the time, and obviously being kind of a having a marketplace dynamic meant that we'd have to jumpstart this in some way because you have a supply and demand problem. You can't really have customers without having the hacker network, but you can't really have the hacker network without having customers. So we had to figure that out, which you know I, I could talk more to. I'm sure it'd be interesting to some people. But once we we figured that out, we were able to then get our initial customers, see the feedback, and we basically told these customers, look, you're design pilot customers. Like we haven't figured everything out yet. Of course, you never tell them that they're the first, but they came on board and we were able to launch a first successful engagement and then use that success to start getting customer after customer after that. So shortly after Techstars, you moved to the Bay Area, right? Um, how did you go about building up this network and meeting the right buyers? Because the CISO and security exec community is you know, pretty small and tight-knit a lot of the time, right? So how did you kind of break in and get these engagements up and running? Yeah, so we got introduced to a number of people out in Silicon Valley through one of our very early mentors and advisors, 
Derek Smith. Um, he's the CEO of Shape Security, another venture back firm who's doing really, really cool st- stuff in the cybersecurity space. He, he uh, was the CEO of a couple other um, very successful startups before this. Derek helped uh, introduce us to Kleiner Perkins and, and made some introductions to you know, Google and Greylock and, and a few other firms. Um, we had not yet met GGV at the time when we were doing that small seed round. It was a million and a half dollars. Um, and it, you know, looking back, it was a little bit of a party round. I think people were just trying to test the waters and see is there, are there legs behind this thing. But uh, I'll tell you, we had a very tough time deciding: should we actually move the company out to Silicon Valley and take this money, or should we actually keep it in Boston? There are a couple VCs out there that really wanted us to stay. They were offering a great valuation for the company, and it was a very tough decision. But ultimately, after talking to a lot of people, they thought it'd be best for the business to be out here, and we decided to take the money and. We moved out. I won't forget. I was living in Derek Smith's basement for a, a number of weeks before uh, actually finding a, a permanent place to live. Our, our first office was out of the Kleiner Perkins uh, incubator in their basement. Ted Schlein spent a lot of time with us in those early days. It was all about kind of customer validation, building the product into a a minimal viable product, getting customers on board, leveraging our, our early VCs to to. Get introductions to the right people, whether they be CISOs or or development teams, and then you know once you have those first few success cases, things get way easier from there. Any regrets or any time now in the in the last couple of years that you've looked back on that move from Boston and said, hmm, maybe we shouldn't have done it or the road not taken? Zero regrets. So you think this was the right decision? One hundred percent. I don't think we we would be where we are today if we did not make that move. I think the ecosystem out here is just so much more robust. The talent is phenomenal. The VC network out here is amazing. They're so well connected. You know, their ability to get you introduced to not only to, to customers but to new employees, to executives who are, are now part of the company. We, we would not have the phenomenal team we have today without being in the Bay Area and you know getting the introductions from our, our partners and our investors. So you talked about the introductions that you got, and you've also alluded to the fact that you're selling to some pretty big companies. You know, going back a few years as a, as a really small company, you're out in Silicon Valley. You're pretty much brand new to the world. You've got a very innovative but new model. You're going after a space that's dynamic. How did you convince some of your early large customers to work with you? What was that process like? I think it's a combination of a little bit of uh, fake it till you make it, <laughs> um, and and actually just having an innovative model where you can get the interest and then you can answer all the questions or objections and you can expect them so that when these huge company CISOs come to you and ask you like how do you trust these security researchers you have an answer for them. So on the fake it till you make it side, you know our, our early customers, we actually instead of having more of a crowdsource network that we paid bounties for, we actually paid them more like consultants, and that's how we got this off the ground. So when I talked about kind of solving that supply and demand problem, that's how we accomplished that. We did have a number of them, so it was still quote unquote crowdsourced <laughs> sort of, but obviously not at the same volume as it is today. You know, a lot of the technology was very early back then. So while we had a, a mechanism for researchers to report vulnerabilities through us, there was still a ton of manual work that we had to do to make this all happen. You know, if you look at the product today, I mean, and you compare it to what it was, man, it's uh, it's pretty amazing that any customer was using that early product, especially when you th- consider how big these companies were. 
The other piece of it, though, is we actually got a lot of inbound interest. Uh, a lot of the early PR campaigns that we did um, were incredibly successful. One of our largest customers today in the financial services sector, one of the big credit card processors, they actually found us through a New York Times article that was printed back in 2013. Uh, he read the article. It was an article more uh, geared towards you know, NSA, ex-NSA leaving and starting companies, but they spent a lot of time talking about Synac. And I got an email the day that that article came out from a senior vice president at this big company, and he said, "Wow, this is just a brilliant idea. Like, we need to learn more. We need to get in front of you." And that was our real first enterprise account that came from that PR campaign. And I never thought PR would really do that much, especially in those early days. But it's pretty incredible when you get such a placement in a, a paper like the New York Times, uh, what that could lead to. So. Those are just a couple of examples, and obviously a lot of work went into to establishing these early customer accounts. But if you look at our logos, even in those early days, a lot of our VCs would tell us, like, I can't believe you're knocking down these accounts. Just the size of these customers, and as small as you guys are, it's a pretty incredible feat. So you mentioned that you know the product has changed a lot, obviously, since those early days. Um, how did those early customer conversations kind of challenge hypotheses and kind of take you down different directions? Did you really have to change certain things you weren't expecting to? I think you have to really look at those early customers as a mechanism to test what you're building and react very quickly to drive your requirements. You're not going to have a perfect product in those early days. You're going to be missing a lot of features and functionality that they need, and you're going to have to basically tell those customers, "Look, like you don't want to scare them. You don't want to say you're too early and you're you're too small because then they start thinking, okay, wait, should I be working with this company?' But at the same time, you want them to understand it's a product that's evolving." And you need their input. And if a customer is not willing to give that input, they're probably not a good early customer for you. Um, and so we were great at kind of establishing that dynamic with those early customers and telling them, hey, like if there's a feature missing or if there's something you think we should be doing differently, we'd love to have those feedback sessions. We'd meet with them very regularly. It was very hands on. It wasn't like deploy the product, they start using it, and you don't talk to them again. It was very iterative from there. So I think that was probably the most important thing we learned. So the evolution of your team has had to keep up with uh, the customer uh, count and new logos that you've been adding. You've added uh, VP Sales, more recently uh, VP Product. Talk a little bit about how you've thought about and methodically gone out and filled your team, and what what's important when you're when you're hiring somebody new, an executive that's new. How do you go about doing that? What's worked well for you, and what are some of the pitfalls you try to avoid? Yeah, in those early days, I think you certainly have to recognize, you know, you're going to be wearing a lot of hats, but you're absolutely not the expert at any of those areas that, or any of those hats that you're wearing. And so for me, it was how can we find the best talent we possibly can to fill our executive team and then run functions of the business that I had no business really running. And so we looked across, you know, other security companies. We kicked off searches, and I have a philosophy that you have to empower these people to do the jobs that they were hired to do. And you can't micromanage these teams. It's really, really important. So you have to have the trust in these guys to and girls to uh, to to run their functions really, really well. And so we were looking for people who obviously had startup experience. If they had experience in the cybersecurity space, great. Not necessarily a requirement, and not everyone on our executive team does have cybersecurity experience. But they've all have proven track records of, of building big companies, and they were on for the ride for uh, a number of years at various startups. And so um, 
you know, I, I look today and we just have a phenomenal team. And it's not only our executives, it's also our engineers and our operations team who they, you know, they make our customers successful every single day. It's our product team who defines the requirements and are talking to our customers on a day-to-day basis. Uh, our sales organization, it's amazing to see how big they are now and how they're distributed all over the place. I'm on the road a lot these days, um, you know, visiting them and kind of hearing the not only the input from our, our customers, but also hearing the feedback from our sales team, and you, you just start to like when I think, wow, we have a hundred over one hundred ten people in the organization. It's incredible, like to go from zero to one hundred ten in, in under five years. But we're always very focused on top talent. We interview a ton of people at this company, and what I realized very quickly is that you should never hire someone just to settle a position. You know, if it takes a couple months longer, that's okay. But get the right person in the door. It's a lot harder to fire them and move them out. It's a lot harder to live with them when they aren't great than just hiring the right person in the first place. Great advice. Just uh, one thing on that. You mentioned that you know you're out talking to a lot of customers. Obviously, anybody listening to this podcast can realize you're a very charismatic person. You know the product super well. You're passionate about it. You know you've got great background and experience for it. So the sales team must love having you out on the road. I'm sure you could spend all your time on the road with the sales team if you let them, but you got a lot of other jobs. And a lot of CEOs, founding CEOs are in that position. How do you manage the balance between, yes, I'm going to help the sales team sell versus doing all my other jobs? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because I actually love being in the field. I love talking to customers and hearing their pain points and hearing what's working and what's not. But you have to recognize you can't scale <laughs> by being out, and especially when you start growing internationally. It's just impractical to think that you're going to be meeting with every single customer and every single um, person on your your sales team all of the time. Because you're right, people want still want to see you in the office. They want to. There's a lot going on there as well, and it's tough when you're based in Silicon Valley and your time zones are all over the place everywhere else, right? And so. It's all about time management. You got to figure out like how much t- you got to kind of set some parameters for yourself. This is how much time I'm going to be spending in the field with customers, and that's it. Like you got to and you got to adhere to those parameters, um, and you got to kind of rely on your your assistant to basically tell you, Jay, you're spending too much time on the road. Like you need to spend more time in the office, or or our head of uh, head of talent to tell you, okay, people want to see your face a little bit more, and so you just have to kind of force yourself as much as you want to be out there. It's just not possible to to be on the road all of the time. On the topic of um, you know building out your team, uh, how did you decide it was the right time to bring on you know these execs? Right on the one hand, you want to scale the CEO right and focus on important things. On the other hand, the more progress and maturity you have, the higher profile, the higher right that is available to you. So how did you kind of figure out what was the right time? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit certain milestones in the company when you start to recognize that an executive is is paramount to the success of the business. The early days, one of our first uh, executive hires that we made was our CMO, who's still with us today. Um, she's absolutely phenomenal. And Synac is a company that relies so much on its brand that we felt like we had to have the right messaging and the go-to-market strategy, and even like down to the logo and what the company looked and felt like that exuded trust to our customers. Because this whole model of crowdsourcing security in those days was like a crazy idea. And I will tell you, cybersecurity professionals are very conservative. 
And so we knew at that point early on that we had to bring on a CMO that that could help us build that brand that was necessary for the success of the company. And then, you know, beyond that, we started hitting points of the business where okay, like the product is ready, it's mature enough, it's time to start selling. We hire a head of sales. And our first head of sales was a head of sales that was great at that those very early days, the early stage of the business. We recognized later on that we needed someone who could help scale the sales organization. And so you, you make some of those hard decisions, you make some of those changes. We decided as we hit an inflection point, I think it was about 50 people in the company, we need a head of people, we need someone to own HR, we need to start building a great culture. And then the same holds true for engineering and product. You know, When you, you hit certain points where you're just like, okay, this is such an important element to the business, you need someone to own it that is an expert in that that area of the business, and that's that's kind of was our strategy or thinking behind it. Yeah, going back to the point about the CMO, you know, it sounds like you were kind of helping create demand for a relatively new type of product, right? And it must not have been easy in the early days. I mean, even we in our network have at least had people say, "Pay someone to hack us?" Definitely not, right? So, how did you go about and kind of educate the market and get this community comfortable with the product? Well, the great thing about this market is that one, everyone's scared. Two, no one knows what they should be doing. And three, everyone kind of has this feeling that what they're doing today is not enough. And so if you take all of those points together, you recognize there is a need, a huge need, um, in a market where everyone is doing some semblance of security testing. Whether it's a small company or a massive enterprise, they have to be testing their products for security. Now, of course, when there's breach after breach in the media and the various news outlets, even in mainstream media, that obviously helps our business because now it goes beyond just losing customer records, but it goes to, to brand damage when you think of like the target breach and you know the other high-profile breaches that are out there, Neiman Marcus, et cetera. No one wants to be that next news headline, right? And so you kind of capitalize on that momentum. You capitalize on the fact that people are looking for something new and innovative. And then you just get the message out there. Okay. The model is broken. The way that you're engaging with consulting firms today doesn't work. Um, if you're thinking about this whole idea of launching a bug bounty program like Google, you're probably scratching your head and going, that's not for me. I can't do that. So if I want to take advantage of crowdsourcing, I want to innovate, and I want to solve the problem of finding vulnerabilities across our, our networks and applications, what can I do? Then we walk in with a very clear and easy to understand solution. It's kind of a no-brainer at that point. And ever since the inception of the company, we very, very rarely walk into a customer where they say outright, no, or that's a stupid idea. It's always like, huh, that's really cool. Like what you guys are doing is really cool. Um, now it might take some time getting their wrapping their heads around the trust issue or, or how to operationalize this or um, how they're going to get their legal teams through the, the procurement process. But all of those are solvable problems and, and, and problems that we were able to address as we continue to evolve the company. Fantastic. So Jay, we're going to move into the speed round. Uh, as we wrap up this session, we're going to put you on the hot seat and ask you a couple of questions. Why don't you take about a minute per answer? Okay. Tell us about the worst moment you've had in a meeting. Could be a board meeting since you started Synac. Why and what do you wish you'd done differently? That's a tough one because we don't really have any bad moments. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I, there was a, a very early customer of ours that I'll never forget where we basically walked into that account thinking, wow, this is going to be a slam dunk. 
we are going to find so much stuff on this customer because we looked at it ahead of time before we even released the researchers on that project and we knew it was very vulnerable. And so long story short, since this is a lightning round, we found a lot of stuff and we found a lot of stuff within a very, very short period of time. I'm talking like a couple hours. And so we walk into that customer two hours later and we're like, okay, like we're, we paused it already. We, we stopped because we just found all of this stuff and the customer was not happy. They were not expecting that high of volume. They did not want us to blow through the budget so quickly. And we definitely did not set the right expectations up front. We worked through it and you know, it's a happy customer today. But I'll never forget that was a wake-up call for us early on in how we manage customer expectations mm-hmm. and how do we operationalize this moving forward. Very cool. So moral of that story is really managing customer expectations is huge. Absolutely, 100%. On the topic of team, name one of your best hires and why was this person so great? I mean, we have so many great hires on the team coming from so many different walks of life. And you know, I, I won't single out anyone in particular, but what I think opened my eyes the most uh, was the fact that you don't have to necessarily have to have domain experience or knowledge to be really, really kick ass at your job. Some of our most successful employees have zero cybersecurity experience, and it's not. And we weren't really open to that early on. We just said like, we have to have cybersecurity experts as a cybersecurity company. But you start to realize those are really hard people to find. If you're going to focus on that or the, that profile, you're never going to hire people. And so we had to evolve our thinking a little bit. And I'll tell you, these people can pick it up fast. And honestly, most of our, our customers are not that sophisticated in terms of like their knowledge of this space or, or what they should be doing. You know, they totally understand their organization and kind of what the gaps are. But you almost have people talking to the customers that know just as much as the customers, and it works out wonderfully. And so that's my best answer to the question. So Jay, you talked about how important culture is at your organization, uh, and you've also told us now you're up over 100 people, and people are now all over the world. Your sales team sounds like it's in many geographies. So what's the best thing you've done to try to maintain that spirit, that culture that you've built as you've scaled? It's a really hard problem, because when you have, especially a sales organization where people are kind of one or two Sales folks in uh, often a territory on their own. They feel like they're on an island a little bit, and so we've had to spend a lot of time figuring out, you know, how do we get them out to headquarters on a regular cadence? How do we have sales training where everyone gets together? How do we have regional teams kind of get together on a more regular basis? And then how do we take advantage of technology to make them not feel like they are off? On an island by themselves. Obviously, we have weekly calls with the sales teams and you know product updates, and we want them to feel like they're in the know and providing feedback back to HQ all the time. But one of the things that we did and we rolled out not too long ago was a dedicated Slack channel where basically our sales organization, after every meeting, could basically say, "Hey, this is what happened in my meeting. This is what went well. This is what didn't go well," and the entire company subscribes to it. Even engineers, even you know HR folks, we want everyone to be exposed to the field just as much as the field wants to be exposed to HQ, and it creates some really interesting conversations. And we think that has worked incredibly well. Do, do you announce win reports on that Slack channel as well? Absolutely. So those are that's more real time. We actually send out win flashes. Uh, our chief revenue officer sends those out on a regular basis as we close deals. We'll send out an email, and on top of that, we have a big gong in the in the uh, office that gets rung and. We try to take a video of it and post it to Slack so people can see it, but that's always a lot of fun. 
Last question, what is the best book that you've read recently that you'd recommend to entrepreneurs? That's a tough one. I, I you know, I don't read a ton of books honestly because I don't have a ton of time, um, but I read a ton of blogs. And How about a blog then? Uh, yeah. I should say uh, Glenn Solomon's blog, uh, Going Long Blog. Go, going Long Blog is one of the best out there. Um, actually, is a great blog. He, I think you do an awesome job with it. But I'm an avid reader of just any of the tech blogs that are out there, whether it's you know just as simple as TechCrunch or Engadget or Gizmodo or any of the tech blogs. It's so interesting to just see what the new technology is uh, coming to market. It helps us actually think through our business a little bit and kind of new innovative ways to to market to uh, new security issues that we we should be aware of obviously i read a lot of security blogs as well uh, like dark reading and like politico puts out a, a bi-weekly publication on on security um, and i think those are super important you got to stay in the know not only in your own industry but also in the tech industry as a whole i should be doing more reading um cuz I, I can't remember the last like Kind of like startup y book that I read. It was probably a few years ago. Um, and I know there's so much cool stuff out there. So I'll take some recommendations from you, Glenn, and hopefully uh, report back when we do this again next time. Sounds great. Well, Jay, thanks so much for coming. This was a fantastic episode. And I think listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Really appreciate your time and looking forward to watching how Synac evolves over the next several years. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure and hope to do this again. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Karstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com.